Love Talk Radio. Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit and our producer, Marty Oakley. They provide us a forum to share the reality of what hospice is and not the fake version of what we have been taught for years. Throughout generations, it has been the responsibility of every parent to teach their children right from wrong. More than likely, the Ten Commandments were part of the lesson. We were taught to respect our elders, don't lie, cheat, steal, or kill, and the list went on. But somehow along the way, the moral and ethical values of engagement have changed to anything goes. This isn't about a political or religious talk show, although sometimes the paths do cross. The program is about people forgetting that thou shalt not kill is a crucial law both biblically, the law of the land, and common decency. It is in all ways wrong, and yet it is tolerated and often condoned in the medical field because it saves money for the government, because hastening death with toxic drugs is cheaper than treating someone that is considered no longer viable. In the Holocaust, they were called useless feeders. We cannot say we are any better or more humane than Hitler was. Hospice was created to provide care and show compassion to people who were actively dying and who could no longer be treated, but it's turned into a nightmare for thousands if not millions of unsuspecting families. Initially, hospice staff provided minimal doses of pain medication to minimize pain, but not to drug a person into unconsciousness, resulting in a hastened death from the toxic drugs, starvation, and high dehydration, but that's what they're doing. Some of the drugs they use are morphine, Ativan, Haldol, Seroquel, Dilaudid, etc. And on other programs, I've gone into detail on about the drugs, but not tonight. With the COVID lockdowns, many elderly were held prisoners in nursing homes, and they died. Many, as myself, believe they were ultimately euthanized and they died alone and that toxicology reports would reveal that they had some of these drugs in them, but what the families were told is they died of COVID, a horrible way to have the last chapter of their life written by murderers. It is a betrayal to society as a whole, and that is why we warn people about the dangers of trusting without verifying. That is why... I do the shows. Keep in mind, when we're talking, we're not talking about people who went to the doctor and they asked to have their life shortened, as in assisted suicide. This isn't someone making that decision and going to the doctor. It is not death with dignity. It is not medical aid and dying. What we're talking about is stealth euthanasia without consent. 
murder. I want to share a couple of resources before I introduce our guest tonight because this information might be very important to you when you least expect it. Knowledge is power, and you will need it one day because we will all get old. Halo, H-A-L-O, voice.org is an excellent site to acquire information on the drugs that I just mentioned as well as others and their side effects. And they have a medical document that can protect you and your loved ones. They also have a helpline, 888-221-4256. Another resource is Life Legal Defense Foundation, and they have access to pro-life attorneys in most states, and they've been able to help many families try to get their loved ones out of a bad situation. Their phone number is 707-224-6675. Also, there is Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. Canada and United States has one as a side. They, have, they are working with Compassionate Community Care, a charity, and they have a helpline number, and this is for the Canadians, and it's 855-675-8749. If you call them, they can also help you. And they have a medical document for those in Canada that may help save your life as well as other important information. Michelle Young Dewars was a hospice respiratory therapist, and she wrote a book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, where she shares real-life stories and information on what happens inside the doors of hospice, an excellent tool written by a warrior who advocates for the elderly and disabled. Tonight, without further ado, I am pleased to introduce Alex Schattenberg, the Executive Director of Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, in Canada, where he has been a prominent figure for 22 years advocating for the elderly and the disabled. The coalition is active in Canada where they believe that killing people is never a solution to human difficulties. Alex is a leading figure in the battle trying to change the culture of death and warning people about the dangers of where we have been heading in years and where they are now, euthanasia and assisted suicide and why it is disastrous for our society. His website is epcc.ca. On a personal note, Alex has six children, so I know time is important to him, and he is working towards educating people now and not waiting for what will happen in the future. Alex, I'm very happy to have you back after... I think it was a couple of years ago when you were on the show. And I know you have a lot of information that you could share with us. In addition to Canada's new bill, Bill C-7, that they just passed, that is going to change things and not for the good for the people in Canada. So I'd like to open it up, turn it over to you. And, again, I'm very pleased to have you on our show. So this is Alex Schattenberg. Well, this is a very important topic. Now, uh, I get uh, calls all the time from people who call me not not only about the uh, issue around uh, the the euthanasia law in Canada, etc., assisted suicide laws in the U.S., but what's been happening to them in uh, when they go to their doctors, etc. And uh, and I'll just tell you a case that we've been dealing with lately. I'm not going to mention any names per se, but a few years ago, we got a call from a woman whose child 
had uh, had uh, nearly died from sudden infant death syndrome, uh, which is very sad. But what happened is her mother her mother found her, and she had not been breathing, but it had, it had not been very long. So the child was revived and brought to the hospital. And what happened is is that uh, at the hospital the the doctors had stabilized her, and they said to her, "Well, you know." We're going to give you some time with your child. We're going to give you a little bit of time. You can mourn. You can hold your child for, for a few days. And then what we're going to do is we're going to withdraw the ventilator. We're going to, and, and you can hold your child as your child dies. And we're going to make sure everything's peaceful and loving and everything. Uh, they didn't share the truth with this woman. The truth was, as she found out, that she's with her child. She's being told her child's going to die. Uh, so she's taking that time, those few days she had with her child, and trying to soak up this time with her child. And uh, she speaks to the respirologist who was in there adjusting what she thought was a ventilator. And he said, oh, well, didn't they tell you? Your, your child breathes on its own. Never been told, just was not told wow. her child was breathing on its own. Now, why would they not tell her? Well, they probably thought if she knew, then she might want her child actually to live. Uh, you know, obviously speaking, in a situation where a child has not breathed for a period of time, there'd be significant uh, brain uh, function issues, and and that's uh, that is the case with this child. But they intentionally lied to her. They would not give her the information because they might have had some fear that she would actually want her child to live. So she started fighting for her child, and we got involved with it, and uh, that child's still alive today. But, you know, every time that that child, let's say, uh, because there's other children in the family, this child is now three years old, her mother cares for her at home, so people say, well, what are you going to do? This is going to cost, you know, the state, because in Canada we have universal health care, so it's going to cost the state too much. Isn't that ridiculous that you'd keep a child like that alive? She cares for her child at home. But in the fall, last fall, her child got a, a, a cold. Um, her, the child's sister, who's seven years old, came home from school, had a cold, and went to this child who also then had the cold. And with the breathing problems this child has already, they, they had to bring the child back to the hospital. And then, of course, we've got this COVID problem, the COVID epidemic. So the mother was denied access to her child while her child was on the ventilator in the hospital recovering from the breathing issues related to having a bit of sickness. There's no, no, nothing else that was going on. In the meantime, this is just to give you some idea how children with profound disabilities can be treated. In the meantime, so the mother's denied access. So finally, when the mother's given permission to come visit, she's visiting her own child in the hospital, and she's saying, um, why is there some blood coming out of her ear? Her child had had an ear infection that was never treated. Wow. And when they examined it finally, because the mother noticed some blood coming out, they said, they did the full examination. Oh, no, she must have had her, her what in fact happened is her eardrum had blown because they didn't, they didn't treat her in any way in her ear infection. Because, of course, she's so profoundly disabled, this child, as her mother keeps saying, they consider my child to be like... A piece of meat right and I say that to you not to say that I would consider that child a piece of meat that's a human being with profound disabilities but it's to put you in perspective how the medical establishment some people in the medical establishment have to be clear 
because there are some good physicians. There was that respirologist who was honest with her saying, oh, uh, didn't they tell you your child is breathing on its own? They didn't tell you? You know, the respirologist could have kept his mouth shut, but he didn't. He was honest with her and straightforward. And there's others. She has a neurologist she's going to now who's very honest and straightforward and helpful. But, I mean, you know, a lot of the medical profession has shifted has shifted in their beliefs, and it's happened for a couple reasons. One reason is society has shifted. Another reason mm-hmm. is, is that the ethics have shifted because they teach uh, ethics based on uh, Peter Singer's ethical point of view, which means that certain lives are not worth living, and that's exactly how he would view it. He believes in infanticide. He believes in uh, ending life of people who with uh, profound disabilities. Uh, he doesn't see a problem with that because he doesn't see them as being equally human. And this is how the ethics have changed in our, in our system. So you have a change in the culture, but you also have a change in what is being taught to our physicians. Whereas, you know, 50 years ago, they were taught that, uh, thou, you know, you're going to do no harm, that you don't kill your patients, that you only do what's of benefit to your patients, that you always care, never kill, that uh, sometimes you can't, uh, you know, sometimes it's impossible for, for your patient to recover, but that means you care for their pain and their symptoms and allow them to die as comfortably as possible without killing them. And this has shifted, and this is what's going on. I tell you that story because, uh, yes, uh, some people listening might say, yes, but Alex, that child had a profound dis- has a profound disability. That's correct. But, you know, what makes life and what makes all these issues come together is when you view every human being as equally deserving of care and equally deserving of life. And we understand life differently when we view our lives as no different than the child with a profound disability or the person with a profound disability. If I see my life as equal to theirs, then obviously speaking, I'm going to respect their life. And And in turn, that becomes an equalizer because they will respect my life when I'm in a similar circumstance. Absolutely. so one of the things I will go to is what happens when you legalize euthanasia and assisted suicide. So in the U.S., it's a little different than Canada, uh, but not as different as we think. So in the U.S., you have now 10 states that have legalized assisted suicide. So that's the, when they, uh, the law allows a physician to prescribe uh, suicide for their patients. Uh, that's usually done upon request. And I say usually because we have to understand that a lot of the time somebody is feeling so depressed by their situation that they're or they might be going through such a emotionally or psychologically or existentially difficult time in their life that they're not really wanting death per se they're wanting to escape their situation right they're wanting to escape what they fear is a bad situation so sometimes they might ask for lethal drugs not because they're so much seeking death it's because they're trying to avoid what you would call a bad death or they don't want to be alone and lonely any longer, as many of them are feeling in this culture. So when we mm-hmm. look at that, we understand that this sometimes requests, meaning I'm, I'm questioning, and I'm truly, when I look at the data, saying a lot of these people, it's not a real request per se. Nonetheless, you have assisted suicide in quite a few states in the U.S. In Canada, we legalized euthanasia. Now, le- euthanasia is done by lethal injection. So they give somebody uh, the injection of lethal drugs, and uh, I'm not going to actually get into how it's done here so much, but I will say that it was legalized in, uh, in June of 2016. In, uh, 
So in 2020, there was a court decision. Uh, sorry, it was October of 2019. There was a court decision saying that it was discriminatory to require someone to be terminally ill to get euthanasia. So the law had required someone to be terminally ill, the Canadian law, and they and the uh, uh, Quebec court decision based on two people with disabilities who were not terminally ill. They argued that uh, the law was discriminatory towards them because they could not have lethal injection because they were not terminally ill. They were not dying in any way, shape, or form. And the Quebec court agreed with them, and the government did not appeal the decision. So that, you know, when you don't appeal the decision, it becomes the law. Uh, then the government then changed the law, but they changed the law in multiple ways. So what they did is they said, you don't have to be terminally ill. And then they went on to say, well, what we're going to do at the same time is we're going to eliminate the waiting period for people who are terminally ill so you can have a same-day death. And then they said, you don't have to be competent at the time of death. death. So that's the next change they made. So long as you've been approved for euthanasia, you don't have to be competent at the time of death. You have to be competent to request death, but you don't have to be competent at the time of death. Uh, I'm going to get, get into something to say that that's very important when you're talking about these laws because now they're saying you can kill incompetent people, right? The next step, of course, becomes people with dementia and Alzheimer's, etc. That would be the next step after that because you've already exactly. said it's okay to kill incompetent people. And then they said, uh, and then at first they said that we're not going to allow euthanasia for mental illness alone, even though the law already allowed euthanasia for mental illness. Uh, I should backtrack a little bit. The law originally said that you had to have physical or psychological suffering, which had to be terminally ill. So someone could die by euthanasia who had some mental illness so long as they were also terminally ill at the same time. So by eliminating the terminal illness part of the law, the terminal illness requirement, that means someone could have euthanasia for mental illness. And the law then, the, the, uh, the government then said, no, we're not going to allow that. But then at the very end, uh, the Senate of Canada demanded it, that they add euthanasia for, terminal, uh, for mental illness alone. And so that was then approved by the government also. So now we have a law that says you could have euthanasia for mental illness alone. You don't have to be terminally ill. It could be done on the same day, and you don't have to be competent at the time of death. And that's where we're at in less than five years after legalizing uh, killing by lethal injection. So, you know, we don't have to go to the Netherlands or Belgium and talk about how terrible things are, because in Canada, which is in North America, which seems like such a nice place to go at times, uh, that's what they've now allowed. And, and, and you put it into perspective further, uh, the law, uh, similar to these other laws, really has no effective oversight because it has the oversight of the law is then uh, run by, is, is then oversaw by the person who actually does the death. So the law allows a doctor or a nurse practitioner to approve your death. They can kill you. And then they're the ones who send in the report. So there's no actual oversight of the law. There's no independent agency. There's nothing to say that this was actually uh, not, how would you say, a request. There's, there's nothing to oversee the law. And that's what we have already in Canada in a very few short years from legalizing euthanasia. So now, is uh, this, that this the is the bill, kind of thing you go to. Is that the no, bill C7? C7, yes. C7? Yes. Yes, yes. So, yes, so you, anybody can March come 17th. in... And you can be euthanized the same day that you come in, and you don't have to have any mental capacity to be able to say, yes, I do or don't want it. Okay. No, there's no signature. You, no you need to have capacity. So what they're saying in the bill 
is that when you make your request and get approved, you have to be capable of consenting. But at the time of death, you don't have to be capable of consenting. So what that means is, let's say uh, Alex asks for lethal injection, and they approve me for lethal injection, but uh, they say, well, we're going to do it next week. When they come to do it next week, if let's say I had a stroke and I became incapable of consenting then at the time of death, that wouldn't matter because I was already approved. Uh, why this is so important is it opens that door to the next set of criteria, meaning that if you don't have to be capable of consenting at the time of death, well then who else will then become eligible to be killed by lethal injection in the next set of changes to the law, right? Because the government's already talking about euthanasia for people with, with dementia, people with, uh, you know, Alzheimer's, people who've had, you know, different uh, uh, questionable consenting situations. Uh, they're already talking about that, and, uh, and they've already said that they're going to, they're, they've already struck a committee to now examine the next set of issues which would once again expand the law. You might know also that in the Netherlands, you, you could have dementia and die by euthanasia so long as you had requested it while competent. So what it means is, let's say you put in your, in your advanced directive that if I had dementia, I would like to die by lethal injection. Then when you have dementia, and let's say you're still alive at this point, then it's not you deciding. The doctor will then say, or your person in charge of your advanced directive would then say, your power of attorney, that means, would then say, yes, we're going to go ahead and kill you. Which brings up, of course, that Dutch court case that happened when the woman resisted, the woman with dementia exactly. had resisted, right? And they put the, they put the sedative in her coffee, and she continued to resist, so the family held her down as the doctor injected her. And the Supreme Court in the Netherlands said what? They said she was incapable of changing her mind, therefore what the doctor did was acceptable. Well, murder. that's ridiculous. All of that's ridiculous. Well, of course, it's all murder. Uh, part of the topic today, though, of course, is what's happened with hospice and palliative care. And uh, and I think I should get into this a little bit of what happens in a nation uh, that legalizes uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide, like Canada. So, for instance, um, uh, is, is uh, see, the difficulty with hospices is that it originally was developed by Dame Cicely Saunders in the U.K. And if you read about Dame Cicely Saunders, she was uh, a Christian woman, she was uh, a nurse who became a doctor, and her, her whole goal was is to care for people while they were dying. Her goal was is to make sure that pain was relieved, symptoms were managed, and that people had somebody with them, that they didn't die alone, that they were cared for. She, uh, she did not believe in any way in killing people in any way, shape, or form. She believed in caring for people until their natural death. And so the early history of hospice really did follow that sort of uh, line, Certainly in Canada it did, because in Canada our history is, is that uh, Dr. Belfort Mount was trained under uh, Dame Cicely Saunders, and Belfort Mount brought, uh, brought sort of palliative care to Canada, and he was of exactly the same mindset. He trained Canadian doctors to be involved with dealing with pain and symptoms, but never, ever, ever to kill. So during the euthanasia debate in Canada in 2016, uh, Dr. Belfort Mount, who was, who's, who's alive today, was a strong opponent of euthanasia, saying this is never what you can ever do. A physician does not kill. We don't do that. Uh, but in fact, uh, that's what we legalized anyway. Uh, so anyway, this is the history of it. So now that we have this legal, what's happened? Well, the government has decided that it's far cheaper to kill. 
So some of our hospices in Canada had already changed anyway, meaning the new ethics, the ethics of our, sadly, of our time, says it's, it's not wrong always to kill. Sometimes it's okay to kill. Sometimes it's okay to intentionally overdose. And you don't have to tell your patients that you're intentionally overdosing them. It's all about dealing with pain and symptoms. Well, we don't have a problem with dealing with pain and symptoms if we're doing so in such a way to only deal with the pain and the symptoms. But when you're dealing with it intentionally to overdose, well, now that's a whole different question now. And certain drugs that are used sometimes are intentionally done to cause death. So we have seen much change in the hospice world and in the, in the palliative care world as compared to its original sounding. Uh, nonetheless, there was this uh, place in British Columbia called the Delta Hospice Society. The Delta Hospice Society was founded by Nancy Macy. Nancy Macy was a woman uh, in the... So Delta is just north of Vancouver, so it's a region just north of Vancouver. And Nancy Macy uh, felt the calling to help people die a good, comfortable death and be cared for. So she started the Delta Hospice uh, 40 years ago. She started it on her kitchen table. And it was, uh, and within its uh, articles of incorporation, it said that they would never hasten death. We will never hasten death. Well, now we've legalized euthanasia in Canada, so what did the British Columbia government do? They told them that they would have to provide euthanasia. And the Delta Hospice Society said, we will not. We will not kill our patients. We're not going to do it. And so uh, on February 24th of this year, the Delta Hospice Society was completely defunded. Uh, that was the first step. The second thing they did is they expropriated their hospice building. So they, they, uh, the Delta Hospice Society owned a 10-bed hospice uh, that they had been running that they built with their own fundraised dollars. They expropriated that. They took that from them. It was probably worth about $15 million by all estimates. And the government took it from them. This is not a government agency. It's an independent organization called the Delta Hospice Society. The government took it from them. And now the government has given it to another organization in the Delta region that was just founded by pro-euthanasia people in order to operate the Delta Hospice as uh, a hospice that offers euthanasia. So this wow. is the total turnaround that you get in a country that legalized euthanasia, that not only has hospice been shifting, but now if a hospice is not willing to actually kill their patients, if a hospice actually stands up and says, we believe it's wrong to kill patients, then they get defunded, they get their property expropriated, um, and uh, they get shut down. And this is the kind of thing we're facing today. So as bad as things can be, uh, things get worse when you legalize euthanasia because suddenly that becomes then the new norm, right? That becomes the acceptable way. Instead of dealing with uh, people in, a, in a, a way of caring for their pain and symptoms, the government's now accepted that we should be killing people and that if you're not willing to kill somebody, you're going to have to do it anyway. And, and they weren't getting there. money. They were not getting well, money from getting. the government. They were privately yes, they funded, were right? They, okay, the building that they built was privately funded, correct. So the Delta Hospice, their, their hospice building they built, was, they built it about 10 years ago. They did that with their own privately funded money. They fundraised for it. But they were, as an organization, getting funded from the government. So, for instance, if you were a patient at the Delta Hospice uh, being cared for into your final days, they received money for you being there. Okay, So they were providing care, and they received money for that. 
They had other programs, too, that they did. They had bereavement counseling programs. They had family programs. They had programs around other things, around pain and symptom management, et cetera. In fact, the president of the Delta Hospice, the current president, she actually got in, in, involved with them, not because she had, uh, you know, had a, uh, a parent die and she was so thankful to them. It was because she had had cancer and had gone through a lot of pain and uh, the Delta Hospice Society actually had these different programs for people who were not terminally ill but experiencing a lot of pain. And uh, so they helped her out a lot while she was going through a very difficult time of her life. And that's why she ended up getting involved with the Delta Hospice and became the president of the Delta Hospice Society and, of course, became vilified because she stood up against everyone saying, no, as an organization, our articles of incorporation say we don't hasten death. We're not going to hasten death, and we're not going to do it. And, of course, that's what the government took them down for. Uh, I'm going to say something else. They aren't the only good hospice. They weren't the only good hospice. They're not a hospice. They've been taken over. Uh, There are other ones who also have the same position, that they're actually a good place to go. But those other ones have remained silent because the government was making an example of the Delta Hospice Society and because the Delta Hospice Society's leadership had strength of conviction and character that they were willing to battle the government, all the other ones remained silent. And I guess they've now learned that if you're going to stand up, you're going to be taken down by the government. So I'm assuming that the government being so harsh with the Delta Hospice Society in British Columbia has caused all the other hospices to either remain completely silent or to acquiesce, one or the other. Uh, because, so it's like uh, going underground. They to, well, they might still exist, but they're not telling anybody that they... If they're not willing to do euthanasia, they'd have to be pretty silent about that because mm-hmm. of the fact that they, they'd be also uh, defunded by the government if they, uh, they came out that way. We have another problem. That's in Ontario, where I am. Ontario is the biggest province in Canada. Actually, 39% of the population of Canada is in Ontario. And you, you know, can sort of see that because Toronto is such a big city. It's a massive city. A lot of people live in Ontario. Anyway, in Ontario, the College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, forces physicians to do what we call, what they call, an effective referral. So to be a physician in, in Ontario, they have to follow the, how would you say, the, the rules that the College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, have set up as their ethics guidelines, right? And so what happens when somebody asks for a medical treatment that, another, that a physician is unwilling to provide, or maybe that physician isn't trained to provide? Well, they have to do a referral to another physician. Now, in the case of euthanasia, they've been told they have to do what they call an effective referral. Now, an effective referral means referral for the purpose of the act. So that means physicians in Ontario are told you don't have to do euthanasia, you don't have to lethally inject your patients. But if you get a request, you're going to have to send them to a doctor who will. So you don't have to do it, but you have to send them to the killer, which of course is a form of participation. So the fact is, is that physicians who aren't willing to kill are also not willing to send their patients to the killer. And mm-hmm. so there's been a standoff. There's been a problem uh, in the fact that physicians are fighting for their conscience rights, and the college is saying, no, you're going to have to do a referral, and you know, an effective referral even. Uh, we've lost several physicians from Ontario who I personally know, good physicians, 
people who uh, who you would trust with your life, people who um, who were excellent. Some of them were experienced physicians who had been around for quite a few years. We've had quite a few uh, physicians in their 60s who are who who have you know contacted me and said, you know, um, Alex, I wasn't ready to retire. I'm very healthy. I have no problems with uh, with uh, my uh, being a physician, but I'm not going to do a re- an effective referral. I'm not going to send my patients to a killer. Not going to do it. Therefore, I'm going to retire. So we're losing good, experienced physicians who you and I would want as our physician because we know we can trust them. We're losing them to retirement or we're losing them because they're leaving my province of Ontario because they're saying, I don't need to have problems with the college. Like if I'm not going to kill my patients, I don't want to be dragged before the board of the College of Physicians and Surgeons to answer as to why I wouldn't refer my patient to the killer. So, you know, you know the, the thing about a physician, as you know, is they get a, uh, they pass in medical school, they pass all their exams, they get a, a medical license, and then what they can do is they can move anywhere they want. They can, they can uh, if, they, if they're in Canada, they can easily uh, request for a medical license in a place like Florida or wherever, and the Florida Medical Board would look at their medical license and say, oh, yeah, that's fully valid. They would grant them a medical license then in Florida, They'd go to Florida. They would leave us. And why would they go to Florida? Well, then they won't have to worry about uh, losing their medical license or being dragged before a board and being disciplined because they wouldn't kill their patients. And this is what's going on in my own province of Ontario. After legalizing euthanasia, everything has changed for our physicians. Everything has changed. And what it means is it also leads to a void. You know, if, if you say, well, you know, Alex, I believe in euthanasia. If you oppose that, that's your business. And a lot of people might say, oh, that's your business, Alex. You don't have to have it, but I want it. Well, if they're going to de- deny me physicians who are going to respect my life, then what kind of a choice do I have if I can only go to death-minded physicians in my province because all the others realize this is not a place to practice medicine. And that's what's going on right now. You're seeing quite a few of them who have Quite a few of them are, are fighting hard uh, to, um, to change the policy of the college, where others have recognized there's no need to stay in Ontario. They've left, and a bunch of them have retired, and, and it's really becoming, to me, a serious problem when this happens. And this is what happens if you say, and, and you can sort of understand it, actually. The physicians who believe in killing then say, you're judging me because you believe it's wrong to kill, and I believe it's okay to kill. They feel that those physicians who believe it's wrong to kill are judgmental. And they're being told, you're being judgmental. And they're saying, I'm not being judgmental, I just believe it's wrong to kill. And I don't think I should be forced to kill or forced to refer my patients to a killer. I should not have to be complicit with killing. And they're saying, you're being judgmental because there's nothing wrong with it. And this is what you get in a culture that allows killing. Now, if you think that uh, it's only happening in Ontario... New Mexico just legalized assisted suicide, and I know New Mexico claimed it was a really tight law, and it's not in place yet. It's just been passed. But New Mexico actually passed what we would call probably the most extreme assisted suicide bill in America. In that bill, they require physicians to refer for the purpose of the act. So New Mexico is trampling on the conscience rights of their physicians in this new assisted suicide bill. They're telling physicians 
You don't have to do assisted suicide. You don't have to prescribe the lethal drugs, but you're going to have to send them to a physician who will do it. And that, once again, is uh, forcing their physicians to be participating or complicit with the act. And, of course, physicians sure. who are not willing to kill are not going to be willing to refer. So New Mexico is following the path of Canada, and they shouldn't be doing it. That's a very foolish thing to be doing. First of all, it's just suicide is such a dangerous concept. But secondly, to force physicians who believe it's wrong to kill to participate is, is, is a ridiculous situation. And, and, and let's just go back to the very simple concept here. The very simple concept is if you want to kill people, then, uh, and, and you say, oh, this is a pluralistic society, Alex. There's so many different points of view in this culture. You have to respect different points of view. This is what I hear all the time. Well, if it's such a pluralistic society, then don't force physicians who believe it's wrong to be part of that to be complicit in what you believe is okay when they believe it's not okay. Exactly. Right? Don't be forcing mm -hmm. others. Of course, it's not a pluralistic society. The, uh, the whole death mentality, uh, they come back because they say, well, now you're denying your patients freedom, right? Just like when we, the original law in Canada said you have to be terminally ill. Well, that denied people the right to be killed. So we have to get rid of that. You know, so what was seen as a safeguard or a protection becomes then a barrier to access, and this is where we go. Um, so anyway, you, you must have a few questions you want to ask me, but certainly I've covered a fair amount already what happened in Canada and how this has affected conscience rights. The Delta Hospice Society was a good hospice. They've been shut down as of February 24th. Um, you know, and the interesting thing about it is none of that is even necessary. I'll give you an example. In the hometown I grew up in, I have a friend who... Uh, who I went to school with and everything, and her mother uh, found out she had terminal cancer. So that's very sad. And her mother was uh, was like anybody else, but my friend was uh, was a trained nurse and thought that the concept of euthanasia and suicide was absolutely wrong. What happened is her long-lost sister, who hadn't been home in 10 years, finds out her mother has cancer and is terminally ill and decides to come home. We've not seen her in 10 years. She lived a bit of a wild life, but this isn't the, uh, how would you say, uh, the coming home. This was a situation where she came home and then tried to convince her mom that euthanasia was the best idea. So I get a phone call from my friend saying, Alex, you wouldn't believe it. This is so crazy. We've not seen my sister in 10 years, and now she comes home, and now she's convincing mom that she should have euthanasia. That the mom should. That the mom should have euthanasia, and she says, "I've not seen her in ten years, and I've, and of course, my friend is the one who's been the dutiful daughter, the one who was home all the time, the one who was uh, helping her parents out with things, the one who was in their life all these years, and being the caring uh, human being that she is, and right. then her sister is not been around, shows up, tries to convince her mother to have euthanasia." So she says, what, she, what, what should we do? Well, I knew that the hometown hospice in the town I grew up in was actually a very good place. I knew quite a bit of, about the people who were there who were running it. So I said, well, take your mother to the hospice. Take her there and see if she can come. And the hospice then, when they were having their meeting, said to them, this is a good hospice, said to them, well, if you're thinking of euthanasia, don't come here. We, we have nothing to do with euthanasia here. We will not do that. We will not be part of causing your death. Therefore, you need to know that ahead of time. We will, we will be involved with good pain and symptom management, but that we're not going to do anything else. 
And her mother then agreed that that was fine, and she moved into the hospice, and she died a little over a month later of natural causes. Uh, no one hastened her death. But, you know, imagine if they had said, oh, you're talking about euthanasia. Well, we can do that too. Think about the power then of the long-lost sister showing up 10 years later, going to a hospice that's willing to kill you, and the kind of power she then has over her mother, who's probably in fear of a bad death anyway, and being right. told this is the best way to go, Mom. So we have to think about clearly that there needs to be a total demarcation. If you're involved with caring for the dying, you should never be killing people. They should never be killing anybody. This is absolutely no. wrong. Now, on top of it, you have the other the situation I mentioned earlier, the change in the ethics that's happened. So now you have certain physicians, nurses, etc., who are involved with killing their patients. So I can mention to you that uh, one of the members of my board is uh, a woman who was a nurse, and she was working in a, in a nursing home in our region of Ontario. And what happened is, is that... Uh, she read one of my articles about what's going on with the intentional dehydration of people, how they, how they intentionally um, you know, sedate people and then dehydrate them to death rather than allowing them to die a natural death. She read my article about that, and she calls me up on the phone, and she lives in the region where I live, and she's crying on the phone explaining to me that she's been killing people. So now we have to understand what's happened with the culture. She was trained in working in this nursing home that as people are dying, this is the protocol we follow. This is what we do. This is how someone comes to a natural death. We first sedate them so that we know that they won't be agitated, they won't be in pain. Then we remove all food and fluids. We maintain the sedation until they die. And as you know, many elderly people who are actually, let's say, nearing death, they might die fairly quickly because they have health conditions already. Some of them were dying anyway. Some of them, they might have been experiencing organ failure. You know, their body is shutting down. They died in a couple of days. But some of them, they lived a couple of weeks before dying. So they were dehydrated to death. They were killed. Exactly. And so she was telling me these stories. And she said, Alex, I had no idea. I simply was trained to do this, and this is what I did. And so uh, in our film that we put out in uh, 2016, Euthanasia Deception, she's one of the people featured in the film where she's talking about how she had killed people. She did this, and it was wrong. It was completely wrong. But if you get to know her, you realize that she would tell you, like, really, I, did, I didn't realize it. I really, I went through training. I, I was a good nurse. I did what I was told to do. I did it, did it the way I was told to do it. It never hit home until I actually read an article explaining to me what I was doing and how that was causing death. And then it, and she says, then it just sort of like a rung a bell. It just rung a bell. I opened my eyes and I realized that's what I had been doing. And the further point of that story was she ended up losing her job. So she then at that point decided to refuse to do that anymore. She said it wasn't necessary that we're, they were doing it anyway. Uh, these people can, if they're dying, they can die a natural death. We can provide care for them. They're going to die eventually anyway if, they, if they're dying. Um, and, of course, then the head physician at that, uh, at that uh, nursing home uh, complained about her, and then she was given the goodbye check, you know, the, uh, the check that says you're leaving and this is how we're separating us from you. 
So these are the kind of things that go on. So when you understand some of this, you realize some people are actually, and it may seem weird to say this to you, they don't fully realize it because they've been trained this way and they think that this is what they're supposed to do. But in fact, of course, uh, what happened is, is that ethics changed over time and it's become so ingrained that it's actually part of what they do to train people in providing well, they're great. care. They're great manipulators. And when the family is questioning, you know, that their mom came in or their dad came in and was fine and was eating and sitting up and talking and laughing, and the next thing they know, you know, two or three days later, he or she are in a coma, they're not eating anything, they're not drinking anything, and they will tell them this is a dying process. So it, it, to the nurse, your friend, that's what she thought. This is the dying process, not realizing that she was actually hastening their death and they might could have lived a month longer or, you know, two months longer and spent that time talking to their family that she didn't know that. You, and you will die, you know, three, you can live without food for, you know, up to two weeks. And without water, you know, within three days, your body starts shutting down. And it is not a painless death. And no matter that you're giving them Ativan or an antipsychotic, as Haldol or Seroquel with the morphine, you are not totally eliminating the pain that that person is feeling. And that person can still hear and sense what is going on around them. Right. They just can't react to it because it's like they're in a paral- you know, paralysis state. But That's it doesn't correct. mean that they don't understand, that they don't know they're being killed, and that they not that they are not in fear. Plus, the medication that you're giving them can cause hallucinations, and it is causing them to be so dehydrated. It's like if you work outside all day or you're playing sports and you don't drink enough water, you're going to have cramps in the middle of the night. Well, they're having cramps over their entire body after several days yep. with no fluid. But, you know, what you're saying makes the sense. Body the nurse is drying out and shriveling up. Yep. Sure. And the nurse just didn't know it, and I think in a lot of cases – um, the you know if someone is admitted into hospice you know like on a Monday or a Tuesday, and by the weekend the people I would think that normally get the weekend shift would be the people that are less senior, and by the time they come in that individual is already in this semi-conscious state, and they just assume well that person came in that way because they were dying because that's you know you come into hospice to die. And they will convince the family that if you give them something to eat or to drink, they will aspirate. So they manipulate every single circumstance because, as you say, they are taught that this is what they need to say to the patient, this is what they need to tell the family. And they, after doing it for, you know, I don't know how long she was in it, but you eventually you believe that what you're being told is merciful, in some cases, but I still believe some of the nurses are just evil, and they know what they're doing is wrong, and, and they're still doing it. So I think you have both types of nurses. I, I agree with you 100% that you have both types of nurses. I think of it more like the Liverpool pathway. You probably know what I'm talking about, the Liverpool pathway. That's what they had brought in in the U.K. many years ago, and so uh, – the Liverpool pathway has never disappeared per se, but certainly there was a lot of uh, articles and investigations into it because there's so many people who died who weren't terminally ill at all. Uh, so what they did is they put them on the pathway. 
it became uh, a normalized concept that if someone, if it's declared that they're terminally ill, on they went to the pathway, and of course they were dead in 14 days at the most, sometimes less, and they were drugged up and dehydrated. And this was mm-hmm. this is what became normalized in the whole area of of medical treatment of the dying. And, and you sort of think about it, it, it was really uh, it was how say a way to lie to people in such a way to make them think that this is the normal way of death. In fact, it wasn't. Um, and you can do you do a lot of reading with the Liverpool Pathway. It's actually getting harder now to find good articles about all the research that was done into the investigations, it's because uh, literally, um, like I, I wrote about it a few times, but how many thousands of people they estimated who died weren't terminal at all. They 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 might have had serious health problems, but they weren't terminal at all. But they were put on the pathway and they ended up dying. And this is the kind of thing you get, right? You get this acceptance, this normalization of killing. Uh, it all comes from the, another concept of, uh, you know, everything gets shifted. Um, let me go to another another issue, and that is this whole issue of withdrawing food and fluids from somebody. And this is uh, sort of part of the same problem. And this all comes from, like, if you if I've been in, in this issue long enough that I remember when these early articles came out about this. It, so, like, they did research, for instance, uh, uh, Linda Ganzini did research on this and a few others. These are pro-assisted suicide, pro-euthanasia type people. And they looked at the question of, did somebody who had late-stage cancer die quicker or not if you withdrew fluids? And they came to the conclusion that people with late-stage cancer had a better death and did not die any quicker if you withdrew food and fluids. Well, if you have late-stage cancer, that could be the truth. Late-stage cancer withdrawing food and fluids meant you didn't have any problems with, uh, uh, you know, fluid overload. You didn't have any of those other type of issues. It's possible you wouldn't die any faster if you withdrew food and fluids and you would have a better death. But you see, then that research was then applied to everyone. So if I then don't have cancer at all and I'm not actually in any situation like that at all, let's say I have dementia. So now they're going to dehydrate me to death and I have dementia. Well, obviously speaking, my body is fully needing those food and fluids if I have dementia right. compared to if I have late-stage cancer, my body's shutting down. Like there's a two totally different situations. But they took the research dealing with people with late-stage cancer and they applied it to everyone. So when the nurses would say to a family, oh, this is, this is the most comfortable way to die, and here's the research on it. It shows you your mother's not going to die any faster, and she's going to have a better death when we do this. In fact, the research is not based on everybody. The research was based on specific people who were dying already anyway. And this is what they did. They changed this whole issue. They flipped it upside down, and they convinced people that this was the truth and, in fact, it wasn't the truth. And I'm assuming that there's lots of people who bought into the research because they were taught about it from someone with a white coat, and then they became they saw that it's something that we just do. It's normalized to them, and they've taught it to others if it's the right way to go. But in fact, it's about killing people. Well, and they they have expanded what you know, like you were saying earlier with Dame Sicily, that it was for the actively dying and it's to minimize pain, they have expanded it now, like you said, to dementia, congestive heart failure, COPD, people that are incontinent or can't feed or dress themselves. I mean, the list has gotten so broad now that 
anybody can come in and they can qualify to become a hospice person, and then they will use the one-size-fits-all, as in the liver pool, and they will start that pathway, and they will tell the family this person's dying. Well, they are dying because you're killing them. But because the people don't know what's going on, they haven't heard this, they watch their loved one come in, being okay, start to show the signs of dying, and they're handed some pamphlet and you know, which says it's a person's dying. And they do exhibit all of those signs because they yep. are dying. But the average family has no clue because they're, again, like you said, when you have the white coat on, everybody believes that you do no harm and that you're the doctor or you're the nurse and you're being, you're being compassionate and you know what you're talking about. it. And it is an absolute lie. Okay, Absolutely. so you have a difference in the U.S. also in the fact that you have what's developed into a hospice industry. So we don't quite have the same thing in Canada because we have, because uh, as much as there's a lot of problems with universal health care, it, it doesn't do the same thing as what you're doing because your, your government is specifically funding through its Medicaid program money towards people who are enrolled into hospice. Correct. So in fact, hospice can become a very lucrative business for the hospice industry and putting people into hospice, so, so someone being declared that they have six months left to live now qualifies for hospice. The hospice then is receiving X amount of dollars from the government for your care. And then they put you, so, so this whole thing becomes a real industry of money in exactly. order to then turn through the people, turning them through the hospice system. So you've actually lost what should have been proper care for um, this, with, you know, and you can see how it becomes an industry. It's almost like uh, the nursing home industry has become uh, overbearing in what it does and how it does it instead of properly caring for people. Now, what made Dame Cicely Saunders in her founding of all this a little bit different is, is, yes, she believes in using drugs and things to care for people's pain and symptoms. Absolutely she did. But she also was a strong believer in being with people. So her concept was that people should not die alone. And so some mm-hmm. hospices still have that, where that's a very strong component of it, where someone's always with you. Uh, but today it's not necessarily like that, because we've medicalized hospice in such a way that it stops being about the psychological, spiritual, social needs of the person, which was so important to Dame Cicely Saunders, and it becomes, well, if we give them just a little bit more drug, then we know they're going to sleep a little bit longer, and we don't have to worry about them. And, and it should never have been like that. It should never. That was totally different from the original philosophy, which was, you're caring for pain and symptoms, but you know there's a human being there. And that human being should be cared for emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually as they're Absolutely. dying. And they shouldn't go through these situations alone. And if you think about what's driving the assisted suicide lobby and what's driving euthanasia in Canada, it's got a lot to do with loneliness, isolation, fear of being alone, fear of a bad death. It has a lot to do with all these issues of of the, uh, the culture which has people experiencing difficult times alone. Lack mm-hmm. of social interaction, lack of, lack of uh, significant community, lack of people who love you and care for you as you're going through a difficult time of your life. And when you see that and you, and you think that through, then you realize you can understand how someone might want to just get it done, just get it finished, well, it's a, just take it's the drugs and get it over with their depression and the other thing is as a parent or an elderly person gets old they don't want to be a burden to someone else 
Absolutely. And when they, they feel like they're a burden, they just, you know, like you were talking about your friend's um, mother, you know, the sister that came in, the evil sister, that she basically, you know, she comes riding in on her black horse, and she didn't want to be bothered with the mom for whatever reason. I don't know if there was inheritance or what it was, but it was an easy thing. Let's just get rid of her. And the mom just sort of, you know, went along with it. Okay, well, you know, I'm a burden. I'm going to die of cancer anyway. And they don't feel like they have a place to go to be cared for. They're just in the way. And we, uh, we, the government, is making people feel like they are no longer a viable human being. They're not offering anything. They're not working. They now are on Social Security. You know, they're living off of the government because they are not actively out there doing something. And it's when you can't do that, you become useless in the eyes of the right. government and you're in the eyes of the money. government. And and in the, the eyes yes, of it's many. not to the people, not to the families who love our loved ones, not to us, but to the government because it's it's a money thing. It's all about money. And it is so tragic well, and sad. Um, the other thing so I wanted to ask you. all of our negativity, you, yeah, go on, yes, yeah, yeah, go on. Oh, well, I wanted to ask you, you had written an article, um, which I, I found quite interesting, about um, the euthanasia execution drug controversy. Right. I've actually written a fair amount about that, and we can actually get into that. You were talking about the drugs that are used for sedating people, et cetera. And um, so what's, uh, what people don't understand in the U.S. is that uh, – there's been a lot of experiments done on people with lethal drugs. And they don't realize that because the assisted suicide lobby has been trying to find a cheaper way to kill for quite a few years now. So uh, it was around 2015 or 2016, the assisted suicide lobby, doctors who were involved with assisted suicide, got together and started thinking, well, we need a cheaper, effective way to kill. So they started to come up with these lethal drug concoctions and there were experienced, so people who would say yes to assisted suicide and got approved for assisted suicide were actually being part of an experimental process for killing. And so this is the first thing that happened. There was a lot of bad deaths. So the assisted suicide lobby didn't care. They claimed this is all about death with dignity, but they didn't care that these people were, their throats were burning as they were dying and they were screaming out of their, into their death. They didn't care that some of these people, you know, it took them forever to die. They gave them these lethal drugs because it was a cheap way, and in the end, they did die. Uh, so this is what was going on. But the second thing is, with this whole issue with the uh, lethal drugs, is there's been research done on, well, how these people are actually dying. And so, um, you know, we don't get autopsies from assisted suicide deaths. But what we do get is autopsies from capital punishment deaths. And the autopsies from the capital punishment deaths show us that they didn't die from the drug shutting down the heart. They died from the lungs filling with fluid. They actually died of drowning. And so these are the same drugs that are being used for cattle punishment that are being used for suicide. So it's the same death. So what they do to how assisted suicide is done is they give you three different drugs. And we were always told that the third drug was to shut down the heart, but in fact now we know it doesn't do that at all. What it does is it, uh, it basically shuts down the lungs by the lungs filling with fluid is what actually happens. So the first drug is to cause the person to go into a type of, uh, uh, first, well, the first drug actually is to cause them so they don't throw up. Because these drugs 
really have a big problem with the body re- reacting to them and people throw up and then if they throw up and then they don't die obviously because they threw up the drugs so the first drug is to keep them from throwing up the second drug is to put them in a type of a paralysis so they become paralyzed and the reason for that was is uh, there was a lot of complaints that people were going into convulsions and they'd give them these lethal drugs and they go into convulsions so if you give them a paralytic they don't go into convulsions and the third drug they said was to shut down the heart now we're knowing the reality is, is when you're looking at the experiments and how these drugs actually work it doesn't work that way at all they actually die of drowning now the the reaction happens for some people fairly quick uh, but for most but for some people it takes a very long time so if you're looking at the data for instance in Oregon in 2018 someone died 47 hours after taking the drugs uh, quite a few people it was 31 hours or 35 hours 30 hours it takes some for some people very long time to die many of them uh, you know the, the the average was more than three hours people take a long time to die and they're dying actually of drowning that's how they're dying it's the, the lungs filling up with fluid and so when you're thinking about this is this a death with dignity of course it's not a death with dignity there's nothing dignified no. about it it's all a lie uh, I'm not saying that there's a, if it was a, a cleaner way to die that it would be now uh, you know acceptable what I'm saying is is this a suicide lobby lies to its people lies to people all the time and the reason is is that uh, they, they want you to think it's something that it isn't they've always done that it's from the very beginning they wanted you to think of it as something that wasn't they don't want to tell you that it's killing oh this isn't killing you see in our fatal flaws film uh, we, uh, we the filmmaker uh, interviewed the guy who runs the euthanasia clinic in the Netherlands and he's saying there's no one being killed here this is a death with dignity what do you mean there's no one being killed here? you kill them by lethal injection you get them lethal drugs and you inject them with those drugs that's killing maybe they asked for it that's true but it's killing call it whatever you that's want that's right and I, and I always tell people you know at least in Canada as bad as it is the law is honest I, I, you know they tell me Alex this isn't about killing I say the law even agrees with me that it's about killing in Canada they legalized euthanasia because it is killing it's lethal injection that's what it is they created an exception to homicide in our homicide act so you know in, in, in our law you have first-degree murder secondary murder and you have manslaughter three levels of murder right so they, they created an exception of first-degree murder and that's the euthanasia law so doctors mm-hmm. and nurse practitioners who approve this they're then they then fulfill the exception to murder. So if you want to it's, find our law in Canada, you've got to go to the Homicide Act. At least that's honest, because that's what it is. It's homicide. It's killing people. It's premeditated, it premeditated Absolutely. and condoned murder is what it is. And in the United States, when they say they have, they intend states that we have assisted suicide, but euthanasia is practiced in all states under Right. guys of compassionate hospice and regardless it is murder you are killing somebody when you hasten right. someone's death whether it is by three days or two months or, or a week it doesn't make any difference when you take it upon yourself to hasten someone's death and they're not given a natural you know in God's time in that person's time when their body shuts down naturally it is killing them and, and I by no way would say that someone does not have a right to be, if they're in a great deal of pain, that 
they shouldn't have their pain minimized. If that's what they want, they agree to it, they consent to it. I am all for giving somebody something to minimize their pain, not to drug them into a coma and dehydrate them to death. That And that is, you know, that to me, that is murder any way that you look at it. So I, I would agree with you 100%. I do, of course, create that, that one situation where someone is going through what you would call a, a nerve pain. And so they have a type of pain which is quite harsh, and it cannot be effectively mitigated by morphine. Now, there is things that they can do to, to, to lessen that pain, but, I mean, that type of pain is pretty bad. I do think it's okay to put somebody into a sleep. I don't think it's okay to kill them, though. I don't think it's ever okay to kill them. But I do believe it's okay to put them to a sleep because then obviously then they're, uh, they're not experiencing that nerve pain. But these are very minor numbers. Like the people who actually experience what I'm describing now are a very tiny number. Right. Uh, and I would never advocate that we dehydrate them to death. But and I it, would well, say it should that be a case there are certain case. times that that's – Yeah, and there's certain times I would say that's, if that's all we can do, then I guess we need to do that, but we don't kill them. Well, and I guess, I mean, I'll I'll go back to something Marty said a few years ago. You know, if you're going to do that, for God's sakes, take a 45 out and just shoot shoot them when they're not looking. You know, I mean, that to me, and by no means am I really advocating that, but at least that is quick. That is, you know, it's not like the, you know, the drawn-out, painful way of, you know, drowning somebody with their lungs and, you know, making them hallucinate. They're just, right, no, I do believe that's okay you know, it, with sleep, but only in certain circumstances. And, only in certain uh, and circumstances. And never to kill them. And never to kill right. them, that's right. Absolutely. Right. But for most and, people, and there should never be a one-size-fits-all. They, you know, I belong Absolutely. to several um Facebook groups, one of them is Murdered by Hospice, which is an appropriate name. But um, one of the Facebook groups is, oh, hell, I'm a hospice nurse. And in that group, they joke about giving someone a ham sandwich if they don't behave. Oh, well, I just threatened to give them a ham sandwich, you know, which is obviously Haldol, Ativan, and morphine. And one of the um, nurses had put in there that she was giving this patient morphine every two hours. I don't remember um, you know the the amount, but it was like she was giving him morphine and Ativan every two hours, and she goes, he just won't die. He's still living. What can I do? And several other nurses had come in and said, well, turn him on his left side. Somebody else came in and said, give him a couple of doses of Haldol. That should do the trick. And a few compassionate nurses came in and said, if he's dying anyway, why don't you leave him alone and let him be at peace and die naturally? So there were a couple of nurses that seemed to have show some compassion, but there were so many in there that just came in saying, you know, well, give him this, give him this, give him this. Fortunately, um, somebody turned them in and reported it, and it is now being investigated, and this is um, in Texas, was a facility in Texas, yeah. and it is now being investigated by the FBI. So well, that, we, we had the case in, in Ontario of a nurse who was using, a, um, she was using a, what do you call it, uh, insulin to kill her patients. Because if you don't need any insulin, you're given insulin. Well, then obviously that affects your 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 blood sugar. And if you give them a certain amount when they have no need for it, that was killing them. And she had killed quite a few patients that way. And so that's how she was dealing with patients who wouldn't die. She'd give them a big shot of insulin. 
I can't imagine what kind of death that would be. Is that like a drowning death too? Uh, well, I'm not exactly sure. I have no idea. I just know that uh, that uh, when it started him. to be uncovered, that they did a whole bunch of investigations and they and they uh, were able to uncover quite a few deaths and did choose she able to get, get away with it. What, did but, she go to jail? Uh, yeah, yeah, Is she in she, jail? Yeah, she's in jail now. Yeah, for murder. So, yeah, she she was convicted, but she she had done her this for quite a few years. Um, Why doesn't she get the death penalty? She's a Canadian. Pardon? We don't have the death penalty. She's you don't a Canadian. Have the death we don't penalty? have the death penalty, so, it's, so we don't go there. No. But you kill people in the hospital. I'm sorry. Isn't that, that crazy? Really... Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, wow. So the the reports that you're talking about were that they did the autopsy reports were in Oregon. When we were talking about, you know, the drugs they well, used. No, no. The, uh, the one I'm talking about those reports, they were in the U.S. Yeah, so they yeah, uh, okay. they have uh, quite a few autopsy reports of people who have died uh, by okay. lethal drugs through capital punishment. But you see, those are the same drugs. What's happened is is that they're using the same drugs for capital punishment now as they use so, for assisted suicide. Okay, so it's exactly that, the same death. What is that? that what is that? Morphine. What drugs well, are they using? Well, I can actually using? send you all the information you know? about it because they, cause they have, uh, there's a whole uh, different groups of them. I can send you an article that shows you exactly what they're using. Okay. But it's the yeah, same okay. drug types. It's the same thing. And the okay. death then is of this, of this nature. In fact, uh, our, in our recent debate in, about Bill C-7 in Canada, the Canadian Senate, uh, uh, the one physician who's done all this research on how these deaths are actually occurring, how the body actually dies with these deaths, he spoke to the Senate, and he made it. And then he had another article that he published. You can see that I republished uh, information about it, where he explained to the Senate exactly how these people, by euthanasia, how those drugs actually work, how they react in the body, and how these deaths are actually deaths by drowning, and not what you've been told. We've been told they were deaths by the heart shutting down, but in fact, it's not true at all. It's deaths by drowning. The lungs fill up with fluid. That's how they die. But the Senate did not care when he. Reported that. No, the Senate did not care. No, they, they did not care. No. In fact, the Senate said that they wanted to expand it to include uh, people with, um, with mental illness. And that's, that's how the government, the, uh, the government ended up doing that, too, because the Senate refused to pass the bill without including people with mental illness. As crazy as it sounds, yes, uh, this is uh, the year 2021. This is Canada. And yes, we are supposedly a democratic society. Yeah, supposedly we are too. But it, it, yeah. and the thing is, it's happening in United Kingdom. It's happening everywhere. And again, yeah. I don't think we're any different than what was going on in the Holocaust. I mean, they're not gassing people, but it's still picking out, you know, select people meaning the elderly or those with comorbidities that are going to cost money to treat. Um, now, wasn't there, you know, I'm thinking, and it wasn't too long ago, I think the gentleman was like 38 or something. He was in a great deal of pain. It could have been a situation with the nerve pain. I don't know. But he was in a great deal of pain, and his doctor had prescribed pain medication for him. But then they said they weren't going to give it to him anymore. He could not get it. And his only choice was euthanasia. Does that ring a bell with you? Um, I'm not sure about that, but we have had several cases where they, we had the case of Roger Foley, 
uh, in London, Ontario, who, uh, who is a man who has a degenerative condition, and uh, the uh, Ontario government denied him home care because he, he can't do anything for himself. He can't make his food. He can't do things for himself. He needed, he needed 24-hour care, and they do have the programs, but the, uh, he was told that he was denied that. He couldn't have that, but he could have euthanasia. So that, that story actually had a lot of legs in it because Roger Foley had no interest in dying. All he wanted was the care he needed. And he didn't want to live in an institution. Uh, he didn't want to, uh, uh, you know, he, he wanted to live in, in his apartment, and he needed the care to be able to live. Uh, so in the end, they ended up giving him the care, but he went to the media about it and everything because he was, he was given two choices. Uh, you can have euthanasia, uh, or you can pay, because he was living in the hospital at the time, and they wouldn't give him home care, so he says, well, then I'm not leaving the hospital. They said you can pay $1,500 a day to the hospital, which, of course, he didn't have, or you can have euthanasia. Those are your choices. As crazy as that is. There was a man with uh, ALS in British Columbia, and uh, he had a young son, and he was told that they would not provide him the care he needed to live in his home, but there was a care place which was two hours away from where he was living. So his choices were live two hours away from your son, or you could have euthanasia. And he was thinking, I'm never going to be able to see my family because I have to be institutionalized because you won't give me the care I need to live in my home, or I can have euthanasia. So he died by euthanasia. He wrote a little article before he died saying, I don't want to die, but this is the choices I've been given. And I've chosen that euthanasia was better than living in an institution two hours from my family. This wow, is the kind that's of thing so you get. tragic. And I know it's expensive to provide the care people need, but at the same time, that's the value of life then, that you say that I'm not going to provide that care. Of course, we can spend billions on everything else we want to spend on, uh, you exactly. know, especially during, say, these uh, COVID times where our governments are earning, you know, billions and billions of dollars of deficits. And I'm not saying that none of that's justified. I'm just saying uh, here's a man who needed care and, uh, and he wasn't provided it. Uh, and then he ends up dying by euthanasia instead because that's what he felt was his only choice. Uh, there were several other cases like that. There was the case of, uh, of uh, what's her name, uh, Candace Lewis in Newfoundland. Candace uh, was born with multiple disabilities. Uh, she was uh, intellectually fine. Uh, at the age of 25, uh, she was having significant health problems. The doctor at the hospital had told her mother that Candace was dying. Now, it wasn't true. Candace actually wasn't dying at the time, but he said Candace was dying. And this was in 2016, just after uh, euthanasia was legalized. And he had said to Candace and his, Candace's mother, did you know that assisted death has been legalized? And they, they said, we didn't know that. No, no, didn't know that. He says, well, I'd like to help you with assisted death. And, uh, and Candace's mom said, we're not interested in assisted death. We've got no interest in assisted death. And then he pressured Candace to ask for an assisted death. And, of course, she didn't want an assisted death. So no one, no one her, Candace's mother did. This is Sheila. Candace's mother brought Candace home. He said, if Candace is going to die, then Candace should die at home being cared for by her mother. She brought her daughter home. Her daughter didn't die. Her daughter got better. I'm not saying everyone gets better. But this is the kind of thing you get. You get a situation where now we've legalized lethal injection. So, gosh, this, this is this new freedom. And because you have a disability and your health condition isn't so very good right now, I should give you this freedom. 
not a freedom. It's a book killing. And, and you're not giving her the opportunity to get better. And well, she, she did. wasn't given the opportunity to get better. She did get better. It's actually quite amazing she did get better. Uh, in fact, you know, Sheila explained it to me. She says it was a quite an interesting situation because uh, she was having significant health problems at the time. But she said, you know, she came home convinced that Candace was going to die. So she decided, well, there's no use giving her all these medications anymore. If she's going to die, so she had her neighbors helping her out and everything because obviously Candace was pretty rough at the time and needed total care. She needed feeding. She needed caring. Everything she needed at the time, right, because she was in pretty rough shape at the time. But Sheila says, you know, I, I decided not to give her any more of the medications. It's not necessary. She's dying. Uh, Candace not only got better, Candace went back to doing her art. She was able to sit up on her own and fed herself and everything fine. Um, she she was better than previous. Wow. Now, that doesn't mean that. What it probably means is Sheila was saying, it's not that she didn't need any of her medications. It, it meant that she was probably over-medicated at the time. Well, and I think so many people are, so many people are over-medicated. And, you know, because we're we're giving them all kind of toxic drugs all the time, and they've got so many in their system, and people aren't using the natural, you know, herbal-type things. That's right. Essential oils and, you know, liposomal C and vitamin B and, you know, things like that. And they do take too many drugs. So I'm, I'm, is she doing okay now? She did die a natural death last year. So I wrote an article about when, when okay. uh, Candace died. So, you know, it's What's not her, that, uh, that... Pardon? What's her last name? Candace Lewis. So if you go Lewis. to my blog and you, you see Candace Lewis, you'll see the, all the articles about what happened okay. with Candace. And yeah, uh, as Sheila, her, her mother... Um, was her lifelong caregiver, but the fact of it is, is that uh, you know, with multiple disabilities, sometimes you do have, uh, you know, you do die at a young age. Nonetheless, she died a natural death. And no mm-hmm. one killed her. Uh, you know, well, the sad excellent. thing about what's happened with hospice is, of course, as you're saying, um, what started out one way has become something different in many cases. But I, I find it so very sad because it's not that every hospice nurse and every hospice doctor are bad people and are doing bad things. But I don't know the difference. It's not like they're wearing, one wears the black hat and the other one wears the, the, the white hat. It's not like when you go into the hospice, you can say, I know that's the bad one and that's the good one. Or I can say, oh, this hospice in this town is really, really good. They don't do that kind of thing. But that one in that town is really bad, so we'll stay away from that one. You don't know. They don't have you signs in the door identifying. You don't know. So uh, the fact that some of these places are actually run by good people, who have, who have a, a strong faith-based uh, belief, who want to care for you. They're not trying to in any way kill you. And then, of course, other ones have changed, and they've come onto this, this new ideology. And, of course, the other problem is, of course, is the hospice education. Uh, people are being trained. As I said, my friend, she was trained to do things a certain way. I mentioned about the Liverpool pathway in the U.K., how all these hospice uh, nurses and doctors were trained to do things a certain way. It became normalized for them. They became what they did. It was just what we do. And I'm, I'm not saying that there weren't evil people amongst them. Obviously, there were some. And then there was the others who simply were following the protocols. This is mm-hmm. what we do. This is how we do it. They're just following and they, along. And they thought it was, 
Yeah, they just follow it along. And there's a lot of people in this world who do follow along. And you're not going to notice the difference if you're not thinking it through because these people are, once you drug people up and they are now in a sedated sort of mode, uh, they are naturally not feeding on their own anymore. They're not eating on their own anymore. They're not complaining. You don't know if they're in pain or not because you've sedated them. You have them in this sort of state. Right. And then what and happens the family, is we then dehydrate them to death. And the family assumes that this is the natural dying process. And that is right. why, you know, we do the programs and that's why you do what you do to warn people in advance, you know, go to the website, look up this information, read about the drugs, don't let them just give any drug to your loved one. And when you see something that looks odd, trust your instincts. If it's off, then stop them from giving them the drugs. Ask them while they're in there, what are you giving them? What do you, what's the plan? What do you plan on giving them? Now, I don't know if that's something you can do in Canada, but I know in the U.S., that you can ask those questions, it, you know, of hospice, you know, what are you giving them? But you have to know to ask the questions and to say, no, they're not going to be giving that drug. No, you're not going to give them Haldol or Seroquel. No, they don't need that. They're, they don't have Tourette's syndrome. They don't, you don't need to give them that. They don't need morphine right now. They're not in pain. And you have That's to it. be right on top so of that. my first question. Is your mother in pain right now? And they say, no, my mother's not in pain. And then she doesn't need it. That's don't, right. Don't give her something she doesn't need. If she were in a lot of pain, okay, then she can have some. But if she's not in a lot of pain, don't give it to her. She doesn't need and it. And if she's uh, asleep, do, if she's asleep, you don't go in there and inject her with morphine. But they will convince I, you that you don't want to chase the pain, that, oh, we have to give this to her. Because, oh, look, she moved her arm. Oh, she moaned. We need to give this to her before she gets in pain. You don't want your mom to be in pain, do you, sweetie? And they are so good at manipulating the family because the family is at that point in a you know, shock. Most of us have never seen someone die before, and we don't know what to think. We, we trust them because that's what we've been taught. Right. Wanted to uh, ask you, know, you get, another question. Here, yes. Go, go ahead. I was going to say I get calls regularly from people and talking about their mother or their father or a friend who's dying. Usually, it's a family member who's dying, and the advice I usually give them now, unless it's just literally impossible to do it, is: Can you bring them home? Can you take care of them yourself? Right. And so this is what uh, a lot of people and I, you know, I, I had a, a supporter contact me. A few years ago, and she was explaining, but she says, but Alex, you know, I have not had a good relationship with my mother. In fact, there's a lot of issues with us. I don't know if I could care for my mother as she was dying. And I said to her, well, you know, this is maybe the hardest thing you're going to do in your life. But I said, you're going to find it brings you healing because, you know, you're going to have this pain that you're going to be dealing with of your relationship. And as she's dying it might just come to a healing and there'll be something good come out of this. And that's exactly what happened. She ended up calling mm-hmm. me after her mother died. They took her in. She says it was difficult. And near the end, she says, you know, near the end, Alex, I was with her like pretty much 24-7 for several days straight before she actually died naturally in our home. She said, but she knows she had a good death. And she said, right. you're right. Uh, we had lots of pain in our life together and it was an opportunity to heal because uh, as she was dying, I could forgive her and she could forgive me. 
in this case, actually, she, you know, she, uh, you know, she needed to have to forgive her mother in this case for what had happened. But anyway, I'm not getting into all the particulars of the privacy. Uh, nonetheless, these are hard things to do, and I'm advising people regularly. Someone called me up saying my mother is dying, and we're afraid to put her into. Uh, they say they want to send her to this nursing home and everything, and she's dying. But then we got COVID, so we won't be able to visit her. And I was saying, well, can you bring her to your house? Is that possible? Is your mother able to come to your house? If she is, then you should take her in. Have her right. dying in your home. Because at least then, I said, during COVID, you can't even visit her if she's not in your home. Because we were having COVID restrictions. You'd be, right. Your mother's going to be locked up in some institution. You're not going to be able to be there. And I said, you know, maybe maybe you can't care for her. Maybe it's impossible. I understand. But if you can, you should do it. And this is the kind mm-hmm. of advice I've been giving people, not because I think everyone's able to do it, but because if they are, that that, that is the, the best way to do things. And it also creates a greater respect for life because we understand that in death, as difficult as it might be, there's also, how would you say, a great human experience. The human learning. Uh, that well, isn't all about suffering. It is about no, the life and you coming get, to an end. And you get to say the things to your mom or your dad that you want to say, and they get to tell you what they want to say. If you put them into a coma and they're in a sterile environment and they're, you know, they lose consciousness, they don't get to say goodbye. They don't get to have the healing words that they might want to give you or that you might want to give them. They don't get to say one more time, I love you. They don't get to hear it. I mean, there are so many things about those last hours with your loved one that are taken away when they are drugged up, and it is not fair. you've, You've taken away their right for their last chapter to end, and it is wrong in every sense. And for a lot of people, it's too hard to do it because they haven't had that experience. Or, but they, when they take that opportunity to actually care for somebody in the end, and they realize how difficult it was, but it actually bore growth as a human being in their life. They actually feel more human. They feel there was closure. Mm-hmm. And when I say that this woman in particular had a lot of difficulties with her mother, the one who called me several years ago and well, she was, she's not alone in this situation. A lot of people have pain related to their parents or siblings, et cetera, from their life. There's lots of her horrible things that have happened or very difficult things for someone to have dealt with in their life. Uh, we need closure. We need to close. These right. are hard things to do, but we need this closure. Well, I can tell you... Clear. I can tell you from my experience watching my mother be murdered was the most horrible thing that I I think anybody could ever, ever go through. And being able, as difficult as it would be or, or will be, my dad's 93 and he lives with us, and as difficult as that will be saying goodbye to him, you know, I hope I'm, be, I'm able to sit next to him or, you know, he wants to die in his sleep, which I think that's kind of what all of us would want. But having that taken away from you and someone be murdered right in front of your eyes and having those memories is much, much worse than having the memory, the cherished memory of saying your last goodbyes and knowing that you have no regrets, that person died naturally, and you did not let anything happen to them. That is a relief. 
You had one final question for me. I think you should probably throw it out because oh, we only have a few well, minutes. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, I just got something yesterday from Alexander Snyder, um, Life Legal Defense Foundation, and I know you get a lot of the same emails that I do. The one on organ harvesting from living yeah. victims. Do is that done in in Canada also? Do you guys have the organ harvesting and the your driver's license doesn't mean squat that you are considered an organ donor? What else, policy? Okay, so it depends on what province you're in, but uh, if you sign your organ donor card in, in the place where I live, you are an organ donor. Now, Nova Scotia recently changed their laws, so. In Nova Scotia, unless you say otherwise, you're always an organ donor. So you would have to actually put on your driver's license that you're not an organ donor because if you say nothing, you are an organ donor. So they have automatic organ donation in Nova Scotia. Um, and what happens, of course, is it is a very difficult situation because for some people, they obviously they have a massive car crash. Uh, they're dying, and, the, the you know, this person is nearing death. But we have to understand that... Uh, vital organs can only be taken when they're alive. So we have to understand that. And if you're someone who's, let's say, of a very healthy body and you've had a catastrophic accident but you're not dying, but you have vital organs that are very healthy, uh, this becomes a problem. This becomes a serious problem uh, because uh, someone might say, but, you know, Alex is never going to be Alex again even if he survives this. And, of course, they will justify. Uh, and this is what is going on in so many places. Now, we have actually uh, euthanasia connected to organ do donation in Canada. And so the big uh, question that keeps being debated now is, why are you giving people lethal injections and then taking their organs? Because you can't take certain organs after the lethal injection because that's killed the organ, right? So, therefore, right. why don't we just why don't we just do it by euthanasia, by organ donation? So instead of giving you the lethal drugs, you've agreed to euthanasia anyway. Why don't we just cut out your heart? Vivisection. Why don't we just do that? And this is the thing that's being debated now by, quote, quote, oh ethicists. That you wouldn't be dead at all. But, and, but as you're saying that, I, the problem is, is that we kill. That's the problem in the culture is that we kill. Once it's okay to kill, if it is okay to kill, then why wouldn't it be okay to take your heart out rather than why is it okay to give you lethal drugs and then after you've died we take the organs that are still good but in fact we can take all the organs if we don't give you any lethal drugs right if we just let you be alive when we do it right and that's what they're because talking you have about to be alive. but you again, anyway right but that's a slippery slope and so they will justify that because we need the organs well, the so, fact of it is, is if you consider the, the heart transplant that we're doing now, in many cases, that person has not died yet. And the reason is, is, of course, the heart degenerates so quickly. So they want to get the heart when it's as fresh as possible. So, so when you're reading all these articles uh, in the ethics magazines or the journals, they're, they're admitting, well, to get a heart and to do it, a heart transplant that's very effective, it's best to get a heart from someone where the heart's still beating Therefore, they're not dead yet anyway. Right. So what's the difference? And this is the problem. Once you allow killing, the, the, the ethical guideline shifts because there is only one line in the sand, and that is, is it okay to kill you or is it not okay to kill you? If it's okay to kill you, 
then the line has totally shifted and everything is open for question now. And that's what we have in Canada. And that's what you're getting in the U.S. Uh, that's what's happening in the Netherlands and Belgium where they're, they're really debating the same thing as in Canada, uh, this whole thing about euthanasia by organ donation rather than uh, euthana uh, organ donation after euthanasia. And these, these become seriously debated questions by people with white coats uh, simply because of the fact that what becomes the difference once it's okay to kill? Right. The point of it is it's never okay to kill. It's never okay. It's never okay. So, because okay. everything goes um, otherwise. We, we have run out of time. Um, I, I didn't open it up for questions, and I meant to. We actually had a caller that came in. I believe 805 is a Canada code, a Canada number. 805 is not Canadian, no, that's fine. It is not a Canadian number. Okay. All right. I'm not sure who that was, but someone had called in, but um, they, we, we did not. I didn't realize they had called in, so um, we didn't take their call. <laughs> but, We've hey, had a lot of been, interesting discussion tonight. It's been a wonderful discussion, and, and we went, got over a lot of things. I'm hoping that um, our friends in Canada we're listening, and I look forward to Tuesday with you and some of the Canadian um, group of people uh, on the Zoom call. Very good. Thank you so, very much. Um, thank you so much for coming on tonight. I appreciate it. And it's, it's been a lot of, lot of good, really good information. So thank you very much. Thank you. Let's do it again sometime. Okay. Hey, I'm up for that. We should, we should do that because there were things that we didn't get into and, you know, we could have gotten more into the organ harvesting. So we will do that. So, all right. Excellent. Good night, and thank you so good much night, for, for calling in. Okay, good night. You're welcome. Thanks.